What credible evidence is there that the 12-year-old war in Iraq was not only immoral and a mistake, but illegal as well? Are former U.S. President George W. Bush and former U.K. Prime Minister Tony Blair war criminals? What are the prospects of them ever being formally charged and arrested as a result? On this week's Global Research News Hour, in the wake of an ambitious civil lawsuit and appeal being filed by a victim of the Iraq War, we'll take a look at efforts to hold the Bush administration officials and their UK counterparts accountable for crimes of aggression. We'll speak with two lawyers, Sabah Al-Mukhtar, president of the London-based Arab Lawyers Association, and with Inder Komar, the San Francisco-based attorney representing the Iraqi plaintiff in the case against Bush. On today's show, Iraq War Crimes, Holding Bush and Blair to Account. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 5th, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Robin Speronis had been living in an off-grid home for many years without incident, until she was interviewed by a local Fox affiliate in November of 2013. Shortly thereafter, the city of Cape Coral tagged a notice to vacate on her property due to multiple code violations, all of which stem from the fact that her home isn't connected to water, sewage, or the electrical grid. The city has tried to argue that she is in violation of the International Property Maintenance Code for relying on rainwater and solar panels instead of utilities. Since that time, Speronis has been fighting the courts for her right to live off the grid. Magistrate Harold Eskins recently ruled that she can live without using water or electricity, but she still has to be connected to these utilities no matter what. That comes from the article, Florida Court Rules Off-Grid Living Illegal by Joshua Krauss, posted June 3rd, originally appearing at The Daily Sheeple. The most important factor in effectively combating any color revolution, not just Macedonia's, is a patriotic population, and Macedonians of all kinds streamed into the street to support their country during the massive rally on May 18th. They were already aware of the color revolution attempt by Zaev and the presence of irredentist Albanian supporters and the Macedonia-hating Sergei Stanishev during the opposition's small gathering contributed to the patriotic reaction the day afterwards. What can be learned by this is that a proactive information campaign educating citizens about the looming threat to their country coupled with soft power failures by the color revolutionaries, can solidify the population in opposing the regime change attempt. 
All of this would be for naught, however, if Macedonians didn't already value their identity and were confident with it, since one can't properly defend what they don't truly love. Finally, it must be pointed out that the government's preemptive anti-terrorist operation in Kumanovo and the sacrifices of its brave security forces foiled the terrorists' plans to stage attacks throughout the country on May 17th, the same day as Zayev's rally, which could have triggered such destabilization that foreign powers, Albania and Bulgaria, may have exploited it in an attempt to conventionally intervene and partition the country. That comes from the article Macedonia, Patriots Defeat the Colored Revolution, an exclusive English translation of the interview given by correspondent Andrew Koribko to the Macedonian edition Net Press, originally appearing in Oriental Review and posted June 3rd. Washington just clinched a deal with Madrid that will see it boosting its military footprint in the south of the country. According to the agreement, up to 2,200 Marines and possibly 40 military aircraft will be deployed within striking distance of all of West Africa, and this massive amount of firepower proves that the U.S. is preparing its forces for engagement all across the continent in the years to come. Its deployment along the African periphery in Spain complements the existing presence it has in Italy and Djibouti to say nothing of its mobile naval capabilities, and this arrangement may actually be the most efficient of AFRICOM's speculated formations. In the short term, it's predicted that the U.S. latest moves are in anticipation of an inevitable leadership transition that may soon take place in Algeria, while the constant long-term interest is in controlling the transit of significant non-Russian gas supplies to the EU. Spain's collaboration is motivated by financial and political interests, but Madrid's short-sighted thinking may inadvertently destabilize the domestic situation in the country and open it up to terrorist attacks. That comes from the article, What Spain Tells Us About the Future of AFRICOM, U.S. Beefs Up Military Presence in Southern Spain, by Andrew Koribko, posted June 3rd, originally appearing at Sputnik News. Institutional corruption is killing people's trust in our government and our institutions. Neither the Democratic or Republican parties represent the interests of the American people. Elections have become nothing but scripted beauty contests with both parties ignoring the desires of their own bases. Indeed, America is no longer a democracy or republic. It's officially an oligarchy. And the allowance of unlimited campaign spending allows the oligarchs to purchase politicians more directly than ever. That comes from the article, Systemic Corruption Has Destroyed America, by Washington's blog, posted June 3rd. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
It has been more than 12 years since the Bush administration and its so-called Coalition of the Willing waged an offensive against the nation of Iraq. In 2015, the vast majority of Americans have been forced to concede the war was a mistake. Prominent lawyers such as Francis Boyle have called it criminal. If this is the case, what are the prospects that the architects of the war will ever be punished? In this hour, we'll talk to two lawyers championing war crimes charges against U.S. President Bush and U.K. Prime Minister Tony Blair. I'm joined right now by the president of the London-based Arab Lawyers Association. His name is Sabah al-Mukhtar, and uh, he has uh, been a long-time campaigner both against the 2003 invasion uh, of Iraq and against the previous sanctions that were leveled against the country. He joins us now to talk more about the human cost of this war and about the prospects of holding the UK government of Tony Blair accountable for their role in the campaign. So, Mr. Al-Mukhtar, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, now first of all, um, I, I understand you uh, yourself uh, come from Iraq, and uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe share with our listeners your own understanding, both uh, personally and as a uh, as a uh, re- campaigner against uh, this aggression, uh, what what you might like to share with our listeners about your understanding of uh, what's happened in Iraq over the last decade? Sure. I think we can start by actually saying that in 1990, Iraq illegally occupied Kuwait, which was an act of aggression, which should not have been allowed to stand under international law and uh, indeed under the laws which prevail in the region, the various Arab agreements, and the relationship between the Arab countries. However, when there is an illegal act taking place at, a, at uh, somewhere or another, you would not deal with it or treat it in a manner that is worse than the action. There is a self-defense concept, and the self-defense, it cannot be, uh, exceeds what the action is. Uh, Kuwait was occupied. There were obviously people who were killed, uh, civilians, and the destruction of a state. But to redress that situation, the U.S. and 30 other countries, or at least this is what they wanted to show that the coalition of the willing, which included the most northern country in the world, that's Iceland, and which is in the North Pole, and New Zealand, which is in the South Pole, as well as countries like Senegal and what have you so that we can have a, uh, the, the, the image of a world war on trying to redress the thing. The result of that war in 1991 was the total destruction of a founding state, of the UN founding state, that is Iraq. That war destroyed absolutely the whole of the infrastructure of the country, and that included sewage plants and water treatment and schools and hospitals and uh, shelters for civilians, each one of them, in fact, tantamount to a crime against humanity and war crimes, and they were totally contrary to the Geneva Convention. But that was 1991, and Iraq were pulled out. It was destroyed. People will remember the image where retreating armies, Iraqi retreating armies, were destroyed from the air, which is contrary to the Geneva and war conventions. Uh, so Iraqi soldiers were buried alive. At the time, the 
national security advisor of the U.S., said that he thought it was they just died a little, it took them a little longer to die than just shooting them. The result of that one was the destruction of the country, but it didn't stop there. You had a 10-year Middle Ages siege where Iraq was like the Middle Ages when you had uh, uh, the, uh, the enemy or the army surround uh, uh, an encampment. Nothing goes in, nothing goes out. People have to die and live in that place. Uh, they reached the point where you cannot export food or medicine to Iraq until after a little while of struggle and what have you. Then we went into the oil for food. As a result of that one, Iraq lost more than a million babies. And by international legal definitions, that was a crime of genocide because the people who were killed, they were killed because they were Iraqis, not because they've done something wrong. And that is the exact definition of genocide, that people get killed for who they are rather than for what they have done. Nevertheless, it seems to be that the world was oblivious to that and it didn't matter. And then we get 2003, where we had the invasion of Iraq, which uh, the secretary, outgoing Secretary General uh, Kofi Annan, some 18 months later, he realized that it was an unlawful war. Now, people wonder whether he knew and didn't say, or he did not know. Again, the end result of that one is that the country, that country, is totally destroyed. It was a country that was a secular country, a dictatorship, yes. Uh, but they end up, we end up with a, a theocratic regime in Iraq now. We end up with Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all the terrorists are there now. They didn't exist before 2003. They didn't exist before 1991. So the U.S. and its allies, and certainly the United Kingdom, because we here in Britain... People would be forgiven for thinking that it was Britain that liberated Iraq, and the Americans were only helping. In fact, it was the Americans, obviously, because they had a quarter of a million soldiers there. Now, the degree of abuse that has taken place in Iraq subsequently, I don't think there is an equivalent to that in the history of humanity. There has been a lot of abuses, including the Holocaust in Germany, including the, uh, the, the, the wars in Vietnam and other places and the genocide of people in Africa. But to actually have videotapes of American soldiers abusing prisoners, as we have seen in Abu Ghraib, having people taken to prisons, and they are not people, they are virtual people, in a virtual place, which is called Guantanamo, now, the whole, all of these things, probably at the present moment, nobody is looking at them because it's still, the governments are still there. But I think this is going to be the most shameful history of humanity in, in future years, too, when people look at it. There is a, a, a tendency to think there is nothing there. Then we get into the situation where we try and have inquiries to see who's, who's responsible for all these things. The American soldiers who, who died in Iraq, the soldiers who were maimed, we here in Britain, our soldiers fight for queen and country. 
every single one who died in Iraq did not fight for queen or for country. It was because Tony Blair and George Bush have agreed to have this war. All those who were injured are exactly in the same boat. The losses that the nations, the USA and Britain, have suffered, the economy and the people in these countries, is unimaginable for what to produce a worse result than what happens. Now, if I am right on these things, you would have thought that there would be some sort of an inquiry to apportion blame, or at least to establish the truth. But no, we don't have George Bush and both Bush and Tony Blair are still going around making more money from their speeches and memoirs and what have you, as if they have not done anything. The inquiries in Britain, we had three public inquiries. Uh, they produced nothing. The last one, which is the most important one in theory, it's called the Chilcot Inquiry. This is an inquiry which began in 2009. And we are 2015, and we still have not seen the results, because the Attorney General in Britain had vetoed the disclosure of some documents. The United States of America have vetoed the disclosure of communications between Tony Blair and George Bush. And at the end of the day, we are setting the real example for all the despots in the world, that you can commit crimes as much as you want, and you'll be okay, because you are either the president or the prime minister. Mr. Al-Mukhtar, could you maybe outline for us, um, I mean, beyond being a, a partner in the coal, George Bush's Coalition of the Willing, was there anything specifically attributable to jo- Tony Blair that uh, deserves uh, exposure? Oh, yes, absolutely. Tony Blair started by telling the nation and the parliament a number of lies. It is the government of Tony Blair which actually provided the Americans with the uh, so-called nuclear weapons from Africa. That's the aluminum pipeline there. Then there was the idea of creating this myth that Iraq had the link, or Saddam Hussein had the link with Al-Qaeda, that Iraq and Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, that the weapons of mass destruction were capable of hitting Britain and Europe within 45 minutes, which here in Britain, it's called the dodgy dossier, because this is a dossier which was built on lies, uh, supported by the government. The prime minister gone to the House of Commons, that's our parliament, a number of times, and he told them all these lies and more lies, We had a conspiracy of the government here to support the U.S. efforts there. That's why we in Britain played a bigger role than the other partners in the coalition. The southern part of Iraq, Basra, was the one which was assigned to the British Army. And at the end of the day, the British Army have actually, it's documented. They've killed people, they've tortured people. There was only one case here in in the courts in Britain by uh, Ala Musa. Musa is a a young man who was working in a hotel in Basra. 
He was taken by the British Army for investigation purposes, and he ended up with something like, I'm not remember, but something like 90 wounds, and he was dead. And the British Army, uh, at the end of the day, were taken to court here, and they were found guilty. And the Minister of Defense was ordered to pay uh, compensation. But this is only one case. There are hundreds of other cases which the British government, until now, has been taken twice to the European court uh, to uh, look into the investigation of what happened, who did what, and who is to blame, because these are abuses which are war crimes. They are crimes against humanity, and it is done by responsible democratic regimes. Don't forget, we're not talking about Saddam Hussein's regime. We're talking about the United Kingdom. That's the mother of democracy, where the rule of law is. This is the nation that sets the world standards. I know the U.S. is the more powerful state, but it's Britain which did a lot of the sophisticated advancement before the U.S. became the power. Uh, nevertheless, we end up with only a few cases here, but I must say that even with these cases, probably Britain has a little bit a better record than the U.S., because the USA still uh, have a, something called Guantanamo, which it says it's a virtual place, with people detained in, which says they are virtual people. The U.S. Supreme Court says they have no jurisdiction over that one, so nobody has, because the uh, Cubans don't have and the Americans don't have, so you don't know who has that. And as a lawyer, it makes me cringe, because this is really... I would expect it from other states, not, not states like the USA and Britain. But in Britain, we are still waiting for the Chilcot Inquiry. The Chilcot Inquiry, it must, the report must come out. And what we have seen when it was going on, probably there are primal facia cases for starting a criminal investigation as opposed to a public inquiry. Tony Blair is still going around making money because he makes speeches. The last, I think, of which he was going to make a speech for something like, I can't remember, a quarter of a million dollars or something. It is, a, it is an, a, really a disgrace on humanity. This is not the, the, the British public and the media still feel very aggrieved. And the result of the last election, where the Labour Party were decimated, is part of the legacy of Tony Blair on the political scene. However, that is, that is not the issue. The issue, and this is not vengeance, the issue is to uphold the rule of law. If Tony Blair and George Bush and all the others who, who, who took part in it, and I understand that you have, talking, you have talked today to, to Andy, and Andy has uh, talked presumably about the new, the, the new case which they have just begun in the U.S., I hope this will continue. It may produce something, but I think rights must be, even if time goes by, these are crimes that shouldn't be allowed to go by, should not be allowed not to be investigated judicially. If, if Tony Blair and Bush haven't done anything wrong, then they should be tried, and they can prove themselves to be uh, innocent. But 
the idea that you do not allow them to be tried. I understand the states sometimes don't want their uh, presidents and prime ministers and other senior politicians to be getting into this hot water. But not many people commit this crime. Mr. Malmo- Aside from Hitler, mm-hmm. I do not know who did what George Bush and Tony Blair has done in, in the last century or in the end of the last century and the beginning of the century. It is a, a very bad start for this century when you have people who are not answering for the crimes they have committed. And we are talking about sophisticated nations, nations where the rule of law prevails, and they set the standards for the rest of the world. Mr. Al-Mukhtar, what does it mean this being, this year is the 800th year uh, anniversary of the signing of the Magna Carta? What does it mean if, you know, what what you seem to be suggesting is that uh, George Bush and Tony Blair, uh, having committed these uh, crimes, and they, they, they seem to be very, very credible, uh, the case against them seems to be very, very credible, if not solid, what does it say to you that they could, well, get away with murder and, and then well, these well this is this is really uh, where people are, are wondering if you do all the things like you've done in the magna carta and you had the independence and you had the sovereign becoming not have no immunity and the sovereign uh, this is it, the magna carta was about the king and if the king is if the king himself is not longer no longer committing the crime how can Lesser people, because the prime minister and in the U.S. the president, they were elected to represent the nation. And it is a disgrace that their behavior reflects on all of the population. You know, it's all very good to say it is, it is Bush or it is Blair. But in fact, Bush was acting in the name of the people of the United States of America. Tony Blair was acting in our name here in Britain. He's acting in the name of every single one of us. Therefore, he has to answer for what we accuse him of. He has to be tried. He has to be investigated. And this applies to the U.S. as well, because you would like to have these nations not just being the big and the, and the leaders of the world, but they have to act like this. It has to be seen to be done. Justice has to be seen to be done. It's not just you have justice for the lower people, for the smaller people, for the people who commit the ordinary crimes. But when you have such crimes, which such results, the U.S. have now moved from a nation that all of its embassies, embassies in the world are now fortresses Embassies were missions of peace between nations. Yes, people cannot travel in many countries in the world because they are, because they are so afraid, they are so hated. Or so. Now, it is, it is the American people who are suffering. It is the British people who are suffering. When you have British aid agents go to help the poor and the needy in Syria and in Iraq and other places, and they get killed, that indicates how the other part of the world, or how the world is looking at these nations. And it pains me to see my great nation, Britain, treated in this way, or viewed in that way. And because of I'm, I'm, a, I'm a original, of an Iraqi origin, 
I speak to my people in Iraq, and I have to try and explain to them, really, Britain is not as bad as you think. But they say, well, you know, we had Saddam Hussein. It was a dictatorship. He can do what he wants. So you held us responsible for it. In Britain, you have democracy and you have election. How come your leaders are not held responsible for what they have done? And it's very difficult to argue other people. Now, maybe the U.S. have this idea, why do they hate us? And actually, they don't care about people. And maybe even here in Britain, sometimes we think we are better than other nations in the world. But that's not how, how, how societies are built. Societies are built on respect, on humanity, and principally, rule of law. This is, this is, this is the, the issue I'm talking about, that how can we, nations like Britain, allow people who commit acts and they don't answer for them? Those millions who have passed, who have gone, and the billions and trillions of dollars which is gone, and the destruction of human life, and the creation of this monster uh, of terrorism in and, 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 and the world. Mr. Alvin, somebody must answer for them. And this can only be by those chiefs who were in charge. It's on their watch. Okay, Mr. Al-Mukhtar, I think we're at the end of our time, but I, I want to thank you very much for sharing those uh, informant comments on this um, very uh, tragic situation. And um, I look forward to maybe interviewing you again at some point. It will be my pleasure. So we've been speaking with Saba al-Mukhtar. He is a lawyer of Iraqi extraction and the president of the London-based Arab Lawyers Association and a longtime campaigner against the Iraq War. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Over a million Iraqis are estimated to have died as a result of a war waged without UN Security Council authorization on the rationale of self-defense against former Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction and the prospect of those weapons getting into the hands of terrorists. Inder Komar is a San Francisco-based attorney. In 2013, he filed a lawsuit on behalf of Iraqi single mother and refugee Sundus Shakir Saleh. The plaintiff alleges that the Iraq war was premeditated, planned as far back as 1998, and violated the UN Charter as it was not authorized by the United Nations Security Council and there was no credible claim of self-defense. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Okay, so um, we've got, uh, I know that there have been some interesting developments in this uh, case, but I wanted you to maybe uh, help acquaint our listeners with, uh, first of all, with who Sundus Shakir Saleh is. Great, yeah, I'm happy to explain. She is um, an Iraqi woman who was living in Iraq for her whole life, basically. She's a um, member of a minority group uh, known as the Sabian Mandian people, so uh, and she was living in Jalala, which is um, in the, near the Kurdish uh, northern part of Iraq, and uh, and she she had a very normal middle class life. Um, she was an art teacher and uh, painted 
uh, on the side as an artist. She's a really amazing artist. And um, after the war started, you know, her life basically um, was destroyed. And in 2005 or thereabouts, uh, Kurdish militia groups forced her from her home, and she and her family fled to Baghdad, where uh, they lived. And she actually did some work for the election commission in Baghdad. And uh, at that point, because she's not she's not Muslim, she was targeted uh, by um, Shia militia groups that had kind of t- you know moved into Iraq after the war and then definitely into Baghdad at that time. And uh, she was targeted. She was shot at. Um, you know, her life was in danger repeatedly. And so at that point, uh, she and her family and her children uh, fled to fled to Amman, Jordan, uh, where they lived up until um, last year, and then. She received a um, uh, type of asylum status in Australia, so currently she's now living in uh, near Sydney, uh, in Australia, um, you know, yeah, and trying to build her life there. So that that's her story. Um, you know, again, she's a Sabean Mandian. This is a small, very small religious group uh, in Iraq that uh, worship, um, or they believe that John the Baptist is the, is, is the genuine prophet, and so. Um, they're not Muslim, they're not Christian, and, um, you know, she was able to worship, you know, relatively freely, I believe, uh, up through the invasion, and then after the invasion, um, groups like hers were, were targeted uh, by extremists, and uh, it, it, it became no longer safe for her to be in Iraq. Okay. Um, so I'm wondering, then, how you first came to know of... Uh, she, she approached you, or how, how did you, the two of you get connected yeah, so absolutely. So I was very good friends, and still am very good friends, with a group of Jordanians in uh, San Francisco. And, uh, and so these Jordanians are, um, uh, you know, have a, have a big family, both in Jordan and in the U.S., and they do a lot of work with Iraqi refugees. There's a, a, a huge refugee problem in Jordan. Um, you know, it started with um, Palestinians coming into Jordan, um, uh, you know, and then with the Iraq War, Iraqis came, and then now it's you know, Syrians, and you know there were some Libyans as well. Um, you know, when Libya was bombed, and so um, basically speaking with them, I got to know, learn about this huge crisis in Jordan. Um, you know, and through through them, you know, we uh, we were connected. The plaintiff was connected with me uh, as somebody who um, was part of this. Uh, you know, a group of singular refugees living in Jordan. Um, and, you know, people were basically asked, you know, as I got more interested in learning about the refugee crisis, people were asking me if there was anything that I could do as a lawyer, basically. And uh, that's how we got connected um, to the plaintiff. And, and she, you know, we, we advised her of her rights, and she wanted to bring this lawsuit. Mm. Now, um I wonder what's unique about this lawsuit, because it seems to me there have been a number of other attempts to to get justice for uh, the the victims of the Iraq War, I believe, for example, in 2005, the Association of Humanitarian Lawyers filed a petition that the Organization of American States against the United States for attacks on hospitals and clinics in Fallujah. In two, in September of 2005, the German court declared that the Iraq War violated international law. In November 2006, the Center of Constitutional Rights filed a war crimes complaint against Donald Rumsfeld in Germany. Uh, in March 2007, Spanish judge called for the architects of the Iraq invasion to be tried for war crimes. And you know, there, there are a number of these sorts of uh, uh, you know, statements and uh, 
petitions, and yet uh, they don't seem to have made any progress. And I, I'm wondering what uh, what what are you hedging your case on that you think offers some realistic uh, attempt to attain justice? Well, that's a great question. I think what we're re- really relying on is the weight and the legacy of the Nuremberg judgment. Uh, we the, the case is structured around. Um, the Nuremberg Tribunal's judgment in 1946 that um, illegal wars are the supreme international crime. And so what we're asking the U.S. court to do is to review international law, which it can do and which it does, you know, in, in, in a number of circumstances, um, you know, uh, to review the state of international law and to look at the Nuremberg judgment specifically and to say that under Nuremberg uh, we can review the facts of this case and, um, and, and you know, make a decision one way or the other as to whether or not the war constituted aggression. Now, you know, I do want to be upfront that, you know, we, the, this is going to be, I think the biggest question we face is for a court to say, well, why should we be the ones to do this? You know, our, the district court dismissed the case last December with a very, very short opinion. It was a seven-page opinion, which as far as judicial opinions go, it's not very long, long at all. And the court avoided... Uh, at all costs, you know, doing that analysis that we specifically asked it to do, and instead jumped to this question of civil immunity, saying that the defendants in the case, uh, who were all high-ranking Bush administration officials, including the former president, the former vice president, uh, uh, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, and Paul Wolfowitz, um, you know, just jumping to the question that these people were immune uh, from further proceedings under federal law. And so what we're asking the Ninth Circuit to do is to say, well, you can't get to that immunity issue unless you first analyze the charges. You first have to tell us what are the charges, what is, what is the applicable law, and then you can reach the immunity. And we're also explaining to the court that under Nuremberg, uh, a domestic immunity is not a defense to, um, to, to allegations of aggression. And so... You know, we, we definitely looked at, read all the cases about torture that were filed by uh, amazing groups of lawyers, you know, at the ACLU and the CCR. They had filed uh, petitions in civil court on behalf of uh, Iraqis or uh, Afghans who had been uh, tortured as a result of uh, alleged U.S. conduct. And that was, you know, the one thing that they didn't have that we have is this Nuremberg-era holding. You know, and Nuremberg specifically analyzed this defense in the context of aggression. Because the Germans had argued in their defense that everything they did was valid and legal under uh, domestic law. And uh, the Nuremberg Tribunal rejected that and said you can't argue a defense of immunity based on a domestic law uh, uh, you know, when, when someone's specifically saying that you uh, moved outside of the competence of international law, when you violated international treaties uh, in waging illegal wars. And so we're asking the, the, the Ninth Circuit to actually confront that specific holding of Nuremberg. We have a great case from 2009 from the Second Circuit, so that's the circuit that governs New York on the East Coast and a few other states. But that court in 2009 uh, looked at the Nuremberg trials uh, in the context of allegations of uh, medical experimentation. And that court affirmed the weight of the Nuremberg judgment as U.S. law, as coming into U.S. law, um, and so uh, we feel that there's a lot of great precedent for us uh, in terms of why Nuremberg remains applicable in the U.S. And we're forcing the court 
the issue is that we're forcing the court to have to choose between looking at Nuremberg and analyzing Nuremberg or coming up with reasons or rationales as to why Nuremberg shouldn't apply. And we want the court to have to confront that choice because the Americans at Nuremberg told the Nuremberg Tribunal that uh, Nuremberg would apply directly to the United States in the future. You know, there was no, no, no bones about it. I mean, the Americans made that argument very powerfully. Um, to assuage concerns about Victor's justice, right? The whole reason Nuremberg is not supposed to be Victor's justice is the United States told the tribunal that it would apply, uh, you know, the Nuremberg rule equally to American leaders in the future. So if that doesn't happen, and if this, if this circuit or if this court finds a reason to not have to deal with that issue, I think it's a very scary time because then it, it kind of... Um, it validates a lot of what the Germans argued in their defense, that this was a victor's justice, that this would never have bearing um, really before Americans. Um, and, and I think that's a very scary prospect, and I want the court to have to grapple with that. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, at the very least, it does seem to to put the, uh, the U.S. legal system in a very uh, awkward position if they are uh, – finding themselves having to confront this this specific point about domestic immunity uh, of high-ranking officials. But just just to go back a, a little bit, I, I just want to be clear about, we're talking about the, the, uh, the fact that here you have a foreign person being able to wage this, it's a civil lawsuit? Uh, That's right, a, civil lawsuit, yep. Yeah, and, and you could just uh, maybe explain, you know, what, the basic points, like maybe the, the, the main bullet points that, that, that you're going to be bringing forward in terms of the, the actual claims that this was uh, aggression and uh, war crimes? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, uh, the plaintiff, um, you know, she has standing uh, in the United States courthouse under the, uh, what's called the Alien Tort Claims Act or the Alien Tort Statute. Uh, it's a law that was passed by the first Congress in 1789. And that gives um, a non-U.S. citizen the right to come to U.S. court to seek civil damages for claims of allegations of uh, violations of international law. And so she's alleging that as a non-U.S. citizen, as an Iraqi, um, the defendants in this case, who are the highest-ranking Bush administration officials uh, charged with uh, planning and executing the Iraq war, that includes, so there's six defendants, that includes uh, former President George Bush, uh, former Vice President Richard Cheney, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, and Paul Wolfowitz. She alleges that these six people violated the rule of Nuremberg, which is part of the law of nations, and caused her her damages in the sense that, you know, because of the war, she lost her life. Um, and so the, that's the basis of the claim. And then in terms of the facts, uh, she's pointing the statements. We're relying heavily on pre-administration statements uh, made by particularly Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz going back to 1998 uh, and 1997 even, where they had they were running a small nonprofit called the uh, Project for the New American Century. And on this website, which has since been taken down, by the way, but it was active at the time of the lawsuit when we filed it, uh, you know, this website made very clear that these people really wanted to invade Iraq, that they really wanted the Hussein regime to be overthrown, and they wanted it done through military force. And so we're relying on that to show intent, uh, that these people had an intention that if they ever came to power, they were going to do this. 
And then we, we cite the, you know, we read a lot of the uh, administration uh, administration officials who left, and they wrote tell-all books. You know, we read all those books. And so one of the books was written by uh, Paul O'Neill, the former Secretary of the Treasury. And he, uh, he alleges that uh, when he, in the first national security meeting, for the first week of office, um, you know, the administration is sitting down in what he thought was a scripted exchange, saying, you know, well, what are we going to do about the Iraq problem? So we have... Uh, and we're tying the story. These people had an intent in 98 to say, we're going to invade Iraq. The very first meeting, they're talking about how are we going to invade Iraq. And then we shoot to 9-11 or jump to 9-11, where we have um, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff now in the public domain where Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz, again, in, in particular, were saying now, now's our opportunity to, uh, to use this terrorist attack as a reason to invade Iraq. And, I mean, this is coming, you know, out of the 9-11 report. Uh, so this is not, you know, hidden stuff. Um, we cite heavily to Richard Clark's tell-all book, where he uh, describes you know, the conversations he's having with President Bush, where he's saying, you know, President Bush is asking him to see if there's a way to link it to Iraq. And Richard Clark is speechless. You know, he says, like, you know, Iraq has nothing to do with it. And he has that famous line about saying, you know, invading Iraq would be like bombing Mexico after Pearl Harbor, right? So, I mean, there's nothing at all that, that links the two. And then we, after that, we jump essentially between 9-11 to the invasion, where we look at the pre-administration, the administration statement, pre-war statement. Um, and there's two kind of chief factual allegations. First, uh, they're claiming that Iraq has, you know, this, this massive arsenal of weapons of mass destruction, which we, we know now is completely not true. And my client alleges that, that uh, they knew that wasn't true as well, that the intelligence is telling them everything else, but they were kind of cherry-picking uh, raw data, raw intelligence uh, to support their claims. And, you know, there was all this, you know, the yellow cake incident where they're, they're making up these claims about um, Saddam Hussein buying uranium, uh, which was definitely not true. Um, you know, they're making these claims that Iraq has a drone, a fleet of drones that protect the United States. I mean, this is all, you know, this is all speeches that President Bush and others are making that you could easily find on, on the White House website or, uh, you, you know, reported by uh, very mainstream sources. And then, of course, the second kind of facts, the set of facts relates to the alleged link between Saddam and al-Qaeda. And, of course, that just wasn't true at all. And, uh, again, we're pointing to these statements as evidence of fraud, that these guys were making statements uh, to support a case for war that had no no factual basis, but, uh, you know, as an attempt to scare the public into supporting this war so that they could, they could overthrow Saddam like they wanted. And then we uh, finally jump to the day of the invasion, and I, I think the strongest part of the case for us is that there just wasn't any U.N. Author, uh, authorization. So under international law, uh, every country has a duty to either seek U.N. approval or to uh, go to war only in self-defense. That's the only basis, the only basis under international law for, uh, for going to war. And neither of those things happen. Um, and so that completes kind of the elements of, of the crime of aggression. Uh, and so, you know, looking at that conduct, looking at uh, the fact that there was never any U.N. authorization uh, gets us to uh, the allegations that my client is now making that the war was illegal under international law. And if it was illegal, she has the ability to seek her redress uh, on behalf of herself and, and others like her uh, for her damages that she suffered on account of the illegality. So that's, uh, that's the case in my
it was on May 27th that you filed papers on behalf of your client uh, urging the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeal to review the facts and statements made by those uh, Bush administration officials. And on just recently, on Tuesday, June 2nd, you had this uh, amicus brief uh, filed by an international group of lawyers, including former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark and uh, the Pro- Planet Head- Planethood Soci- Foundation. Could you give me uh, give us an idea of you know where that you know, the, the significance of that uh, specific uh, move and and what the uh, the implications are going to be uh, moving forward with this uh, case? Sure, absolutely. So when you file a when you file a uh, claim in in the court of appeal, you have the ability to gather and submit what are called uh, amicus briefs. And amicus briefs are what are, are called, you know, they're called friend of the court briefs. And these are briefs by people who aren't necessarily involved in the lawsuit, but they have an interest in the outcome, or they, they want to tell the court something that they think uh, would be relevant to the court's determination. So we're absolutely excited to have um, both of those briefs being filed. Uh, and the significance is now that the number of lawyers, you know, who are filing papers on behalf of my client and I'm, I'm looking at the outcome or, uh, has jumped you know, dramatically to include uh, a former U.S. Attorney General and uh, the Planethood Foundation, which, was a, which is a foundation that was founded in 1996, I believe, by um, Benjamin Ferenz, who's the, um, last, now the last living prosecutor from Nuremberg. So we actually have um, a significant um, uh, body of lawyers now working on the lawsuit, urging the court to review what happened, um, you know, uh, in the run-up to the war, and urging the court to review the immunity that was granted um, to these defendants. Um, and so that's, that's really exciting because it tells the court that uh, we, um, uh, that other people are looking uh, at the lawsuit, that uh, scholars and, and former U.S. officials, including uh, a former attorney general, uh, think that this is worth analyzing and looking at. It gives the um, allegations significant legitimacy and credibility, far more than just one attorney like myself could ever give. And so uh, we're really excited because I think it, it, it's a really a, a turning point in the lawsuit. The court can't just dismiss this case now willy-nilly. It actually has to look at it uh, and analyze it deeply because it knows that other people are watching. And so um, what happens next is that the government will have a, res- a chance to respond uh, in the next few months to the complaint, or I'm sorry, to the uh, to the uh, the appeal. And then after that, we will have a small reply brief that we can file. And then, you know, there may or, the court may or may not schedule an oral argument. We're actually we're very hopeful the court will schedule an oral argument in the case, a hearing. And then after that, uh, we'll get a judgment probably in the wintertime as to whether we can proceed or whether the, uh, the, the whether this court will affirm the immunity. And the immunity is really what we're, what we're, um, is the key issue that has to be reviewed. And again, we're asking this court to consider the fact that immunity was raised by the German defendants against uh, those charges of that aggression, and uh, that, that the immunity was not granted. We're also citing to the Pinochet case as persuasive authority. It's not totally on point, and of course it's a foreign uh, foreign judgment from, from, the, from the House of Lords of the United Kingdom. But we think Pinochet is actually quite persuasive in this instance. The Pinochet case involved... Uh, granting of, a, of an extradition warrant uh, that, that, you know, the Spanish judge, Balthazar Garçon, had issued a warrant for the arrest of Pinochet. 
and the House of Lords grappled with how do we deal with it. And ultimately, they uh, they granted the request and they, they denied Pinochet's claims of immunity. Uh, Pinochet was allowed to leave the country anyway for health reasons, but the law still stands that um, you know when 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 people were alleging that he had committed these grave breaches of law, uh, he was not allowed to allow, uh, rely on his domestic immunity. And so we're similarly saying that uh, you know, with these grave allegations uh, that touch on number of treaties the United States has ratified, including the Nuremberg Charter, the Tokyo War Crimes Charter, the UN Charter. Uh, you know, we, you can't allow these defendants to rely on this same defense that we rejected in other instances. It, it destroys the idea of the rule of law. Um, and, and so we're, we're, we're asking the court to consider at least the fact that in a very, in a, in a similar circumstance, in a similar kind of political or possibly controversial um, context of Pinochet, you know, the House of Lords uh, came out the right way. And so we're telling this court that um, this is not unique in that sense, and this won't be the last time that high officials commit these crimes. So what are we telling, um, what are we telling people when we let officials with tremendous amounts of power and responsibility uh, break these laws with impunity? It creates a culture of lawlessness. Uh, and it, it doesn't, and it, and, it, and it ensures that this will continue to happen again and again and again. And that's the worst part about it. Without the sanction of law, there's nothing that will prevent the next Iraq war. Hmm. And so that's, we're asking this court to really think about this. Because uh, if it's not going to be this court, who is it going to be? Uh, the court has the duty to, uh, to enforce the law. It's, it's the, uh, and in our brief, we're, we're also relying heavily on principles of classical liberalism. You know, and classical liberalism is the philosophical basis of the United States and its Constitution, uh, going back to John Locke. And so we actually cite to John Locke, who discusses aggressive wars in the Second Treatise on Government. So he actually talks about aggression, and he says in the Second Treatise that when uh, when a king um, uh, commits a war of aggression or when he engages in aggression, he's no better than a pirate, right? And so he and he, he wonders. He says the law can't sanction a theft, whether it's done by a petty villain or someone wearing a crown. In both instances, they're illegal, and uh, the law has a duty to sanction uh, to sanction that. And and so, you know, if Locke is saying this stuff, you know, how can this how can this be controversial? Hmm. We're citing to the framers, you know, uh, Alexander Hamilton, who wrote extensively on the war uh, war powers and the powers of the executive. And uh, Alexander Hamilton, you know, in, in the Federalist Papers rights that the executive has to be uh, under the law and has to be subject to judicial overview because there's a big difference between the powers of the executive and the powers of, of the British crown, which is, of course, you know, what their concern was, was distinguishing those powers. And so, um, you know, in our view, it's the court has a constitutional function to review this case and to tell us what the law is on this issue. Um, and, and if the judiciary can't do it, then, then uh, not, no one's going to be able to do it. Okay. Um, well, I want to thank you very much for this very interesting news. You sound very optimistic that uh, this is a useful vehicle for justice. Uh, is there any uh, resources uh, on the Internet or anywhere else where people could go to find more information about this case? Yeah, so we're blogging about the case and uh, putting court papers uh, and um, blasting out news on, on the website witnessiraq.com, um, and that's just one word. And uh, you can also um, find out information about the plaintiff on the website, and also there's uh, 
some of her paintings. I mentioned she was a an artist. Uh, we put some of her artwork on, on the website. So, you know, it humanizes her and lets people know that this is an actual person. Um, and it's amazing. I mean, she really had um, just such a normal middle-class life. And, um, uh, you know, part of our what we're trying to do is empathize with her and, and show people that she's an actual person and that when we commit these wars as a country, we're affecting normal people's lives, um, you know, in a way that are so destructive. And, um, you know, I think that's part of our job, too, is, is to show people that these are normal people who are being affected and whose lives are being ruined uh, by, the, by the constant wars that the United States is involved in. Inder Komar, thank you very much. Okay, take care now. Inder Komar is a San Francisco-based attorney. He is representing Sundus Shakar Saleh, who is suing the U.S. government officials of the Bush administration for war crimes in Iraq. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are now also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. And you can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. We'll conclude this week's show with a song by celebrated Iraqi musician and oud player Nassim Shama. The song is entitled Happened in Al-Amiria. It's a moving musical commemoration of Iraqi civilians killed in a U.S. bombing raid that struck an underground shelter in Baghdad's Amiria district. Join us again next week. <laughs>